This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded on October 23rd, 2020. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Ashley. Ashley is a safety professional with the United Steelworkers. Ashley is joining us today from Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. I believe that you are the first ever safety professional representing a labor union that we've had on the Accidental Safety Pro podcast. This is an honor, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. First of many, I hope. Good point. Yes. So um, those of you who are working for unions out there, if you are interested in being on the podcast, hit me up. I think it'd be great to hear from um, all the labor unions in the country. That would be awesome. So Ashley, you know, usually we start by asking our asking our guests to tell their story of how they got into safety. And I want to hear that. Um, but since you are the first person we've had on the show um, who works safety uh, with a labor union, maybe could we start with you sharing kind of what that work means today? Like what does what does your work involve um, at this moment? And we can kind of then go back from there. Okay. Um, so I'll first start, if that's okay, whenever I joined um, the International Union yeah. in, in the health and safety department. So I was a health and safety representative. And a lot of the work that I did and really the team did at the health and safety department was working, you know, servicing local unions. And I'll go more about what that is. Mm -hmm. Um working with regulatory and legislative efforts around occupational safety and health, and then mm -hmm. also working with locals to, I'd say, working with locals to help get appropriate controls in their facilities. Mm -hmm. So in the first part of working, you know, servicing uh, our members, that would arrange from anything from doing an occupational exposure assessment. Let's say, you know, some a group of workers have developed some type of, you know, disease or chronic illness. We would go into the facility and help, you know, workers at the facility and work with, you know, the, the company and the members there to try to identify what was causing that. Mm -hmm. Um Another thing that we did is anytime there was a serious injury or a fatality at a United Steelworkers representative facility, we would go in and help the local conduct the investigation, work with OSHA, and also connect the family and coworkers into some type of counseling program in case they didn't have that already offered at that facility. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time it was kind of working with smaller locals because smaller locals, smaller uh, workplaces, because OSHA doesn't come to every workplace, right? Mm -hmm. I come right. from the state of West Virginia. It would take 92 years for OSHA to come to every single facility. Mm -hmm. So they really needed help. So we mm -hmm. spent a lot of time doing that. And when you say, when for people who don't know the union lingo, um, Ashley, when you say locals, why don't you explain what that means, if you don't mind? So, um, a local is going to be a a smaller unit um, that represents either workers at a, a singular workplace or maybe multiple workplaces. Mm -hmm. So a local is somebody that is going to be representing members on a you know on a local smaller level. Mm -hmm. So it's smaller than state. Sometimes it goes across different counties. Sometimes it represents different workplaces. Mm -hmm. But that's like the local leadership team that's going to work to help make sure that members are protected, represented, and then also, you know, work with employers to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be safe and productive at work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. So <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. No. So, um, you know, a lot of the time it was working with those particular locals. Um, and then the other thing about servicing locals uh, servicing members. I always like to tell this story and, you know, I know you ask how you got into health and safety. Yes. Like that's, that's a big question, yes. but there's also a moment when I knew this is what I wanted to do. Mm. So that moment is whenever I was just started with the department and we had a very small workplace, probably about 20 workers. Um, 
were going to make a certain product um, that infused a pesticide with a polymer. Mm. So, you know, whenever it comes to pesticides, all of the dangers that could be if you're not using it appropriately, you don't have appropriate controls. Mm -hmm. So I went to this really small workplace and they had, they did not have the protections that were needed to protect workers to run that product the way that they were wanting to. Mm-hmm. So I really talked to, you know, the, the company and I talked to the local through their health and safety committee. And we discussed all of the controls that really needed to be in place to protect people. So after it was all said and done, they ended up not running the product in the the jinx of the story is, or the hitch of the story is, is that when they removed the product from that facility because they didn't have the appropriate controls that the workers needed to run it properly, they moved it to a different facility that wasn't represented. Mm. And three of the workers at that facility ended up suffering from temporary chemical blindness. Oh, wow. So Mm. it really shows that, you know, Mm. just workers having a voice to be able to say, hey, let's step back and look at this process before we just do something. I, I think that that really made me feel that, you know, I changed those workers' lives that day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everyone at that facility. And I wish the other facility, you know, could have had the same voice. Right, right. Powerful, powerful, Ashley. Hmm. Hmm. So do do you feel like this is the time we can kind of back into how you got into this and we can weave into more of things you're working on today? Sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah, let's, let's, let's start at the beginning because um, you, you, you had mentioned a moment ago that you're originally from West Virginia. So yeah, set the stage for us. How did you get into this? Yeah. So I, um, like I said, I was originally from West Virginia, mm-hmm. so I um, went to WVU. If anybody out there is a Mountaineers fan, go ears. Um, <laughs> and there I went to school and I got my degree for um, environmental law and economics. So being from West Virginia, coal mm-hmm. is a very big part of, of what we do and really part of our culture. Mm-hmm. So um, during that time, I worked in a coal-fired power plant um, interning for safety and that's what really kind of got me into really doing health and safety and looking at, you know, how cognizant the coal-fired power plant I worked at was of, you know, meeting EPA regulations, um, working to make sure that people were safe, and I just kind of got, you know, initially exposed to it through the environmental field. Mm-hmm. So, Whenever I graduated, I was really wanting to go work for, you know, a DEP, that's the Department of Environmental Protections or the EPA, mm-hmm. and it didn't really work out. So I ended up working at a aluminum facility, aluminum manufacturing facility um, that my family has, has worked at. So mm-hmm. it was really, you know, nice to kind of be part of, of that family and it was a United Steelworkers represented site. So, so what does, what you, you have a family who's working in a, in an aluminum, um, in, in the aluminum industry for anyone who's not familiar with what that industry is like or what they do. Can you kind of paint a picture for us? It sounds like you have a rich family history there as well. So what, what is, what is work about there? What is it like? Paint us that. What is it? Well, I, I will speak to kind of what I did and my knowledge of, you know, the process um, okay. and knowing that I, you know, maybe a little rusty on terminology after all these years. But, okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so what we, what they did is we met, we um, melted down and casted different alloys of aluminum. Mm-hmm. So we specifically made um, airware for Boeing and Airbus. So if you Mm. look out your airplane and you see the wings kind of tilt up whenever you're getting ready to land or take off, we made a lot of that metal. We also made a lot of military grade metal and Mm. you kind of change the strength or density or tensile strength of metals by adding different alloys, like so much silver, um, so much of other, you know, metal metal elements. Mm So what I did at the facility is I would take um, 
cut pieces of that aluminum before it went out to the customer and I would machine them down and test them for certain properties like fatigue, structure fatigue testing, uh, tinsel strength, um, sometimes check the alloy content of them. So I was more of a CNC and lathe operator at the facility. Um, But my grandfather, he worked there in what was called the pot rooms at the time. Mm -hmm. That's where you actually, you know, make the aluminum through uh, a process and in the pot lines. And there's a whole lot of other, um, I guess, more in-depth things that go into that actually that part of it um is that a molten is that a molten process yes yeah okay um but that was actually a lot more hazardous and dangerous um we look at now the beryllium rule that came out um and one of the major places that the still united steelworkers represent is you know aluminum Uh, aluminum making um, and some pot room facilities where beryllium can be an issue. So I, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, lucky to have the protections in place through OSHA and EPA and um, all of those places now, because, you know, people like my grandfather, looking back, facilities looked a whole lot different 40, 50, you know, 60 years ago than what they look today. Yeah. Prior to OSHA. Sure. Yeah. So that was kind of how, you know, that what I did at the facility. And when I worked there, we went through um, a thing called a strike. So there are two different types of, you know, labor disputes, if you will, that could happen during your contract negotiation times. Mm-hmm. Um, and just background on that is, you know, you, everyone, when they go to work, they have a contract. You know, you have some type of agreement with your employer of your benefits, of, you know, your job, different things like that. Mm-hmm. So a collective bargaining agreement is just, you know, a, an agreement where the represented people this time of United States workers, um, where I worked, you know, talk to the company about benefits, about working conditions and about how certain things are going to be worked out in at the facility um, to prevent, you know, to help everything run smooth. Mm-hmm. So, so within, when I worked there, we went through a strike and as I said about the labor dispute, so there's a lockout and a strike. So a lockout is whenever, you know, workers are trying to come to work and they are getting locked out of their job. That could be for a variety of different reasons. One of which could be that you don't have a contract, you don't have that collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. So we're Um, The facility where I worked is also the facility where my grandfather worked. And Mm. in the 90s, he got locked out of his job for two years. Oh, my gosh. For the reason of the contract not being in place or why? Um, There's a a lot of different reasons. Um, Mm. There's a book on it. Um, It's called Ravenswood. Um, It's very interesting. But, you know, a lot of the reasons came back to health and safety. Mm Mm-hmm that they were working in these conditions and wanted, you know, changes in the workplace and for a variety of different reasons that that wasn't happening. So he and the women and men that he worked with were locked out for two years and replacement workers came and, you know, did their jobs for, for two years until they were able to get back in. So that was, that's a lockout. We went through a strike. So that's whenever you have your collective bargaining agreement and for some reason of another, there's, you know, an unfair labor practice and the workers don't go into work until they do get a fair contract. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've been part, I've been part of a strike myself, um, a number, actually my first, my first job out of, uh, out of grad school was working for state government. And so I, be- I belonged at that time to a collective bargaining unit and we struck at that time for, um, well, it was primarily over benefits, over mm-hmm. benefits. And so I, I am familiar with what that's like and I, and I have uh, walked a picket line and it happened to be the place where I met a fellow picketer. I was pregnant at the time. And um, met a fellow, a fellow picketer, worked at a different state facility in my community. And um, I needed a baby crib. 
and I bought my baby crib from a fellow picketer. And that's my son's um, crib story. <laughs> that ah. I, got, I got that. I got that during a during a during a strike, and it's the one thing of his life that I've saved. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, other little kid things too. But that if you know, some people might save. I don't know a certain teddy bear or something. But I've got this crib. <laughs> no, that's meaningful, right? It that, is. Those relationships is. that you form on picket lines sometimes it helps everyone get through a hard time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes, thank you. Please continue. Yeah, I hope that 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 my strike um, definition was okay. That 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 worked. You s- that seemed right to you too. Yes. I mean, yes. okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the one thing I remember about being on strike is my grandfather, right, who worked there in the '90s and got locked out. He and all of his friends, coworkers at the time, came and were on the picket line with us. So, you know, it was a very humbling experience to be standing in the same place that my grandfather stood, you know, 30 years before trying to fight the same fight and make sure that workers were still getting the same protections. Mm -hmm. Mm. That was a really nice, humbling experience. Mm. Um, So, But the other thing that came out of that, you know, is the realization that everyone, everyone still tries to do the right thing, right? I I really think that whether you're a union representative or company representative, that people do try to do the right things when it comes to health and safety. And we'll talk about, you know, the pandemic um, and how many different things people are doing. Um, But sometimes it just takes a different voice or a different lens, different perspective to look Mm -hmm. at things and to Mm -hmm. hear what people say. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went back to school to get my master's degree um, in safety while I worked at the facility. Hmm. And that was a very, I think, very opening, very opening and um, how can I say it? It was a very, I guess, stark reminder of why I did that. And why I thought it was important because yeah, why, why did you, Ashley? I mean, you're working at the plant. Why did you pick safety? And, you know, there was one time I can remember um, sitting there and looking at and going through um, some of the safety issues because I was on the safety committee whenever I um, joined there. So I would be involved mm. in inspections. Um, I would be involved in monthly meetings to talk about health and safety issues, to talk about how we're going to fix some things. And in one meeting, we were talking about maybe a, a chemical, a new chemical brought onto the facility or um, some some other material that was coming on. And we asked it for that, that safety data sheet. Yeah. about what it was. Mm-hmm. And I remember the safety manager, if you will, um, saying that we didn't need to know that information. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wow. and right now I couldn't tell you looking back if it was fine. You could have been completely safe. But I think that everybody has the right to ask and the right to know. It's an OSHA law, right? right. We do have the right to know. Mm-hmm. Um. So going to school and getting that education not only empowered me, but empowered everyone in that facility because I was there to say, you know, next time that safety manager told me that I didn't need to know, then I was educated and empowered enough to say, actually, yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And have a right to that information. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, you know, what really made me proud to do health and safety and you know, initially get into that, get into the field. And as I went through, you know, different classes and worked at the facility, it just, you know, educated and empowered, you know, the workers more to, mm-hmm. to ask these questions and to get involved and, you know, to really make the place, make the workplace better um, because you have a different perspective and a different lens coming in. Um, you know, I only worked at the facility for maybe a year year and a half Mm -hmm. while I started taking my degree. Um, So I had a new fresh eyes in the whole facility. Hmm. Yeah. I bet you were seeing things. 
as you learned more and more about every day you walked in and thought, oh, I didn't notice that before. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing, you know, that happened is that um, we did have, we had a fatality at the facility on a mm. safety hazard that was reported for 30 plus years. Mm, sorry. I know those yeah. stories all too well. I've investigated a lot of, a lot of death in my career. Mm, yeah. I've heard those. Yes. Hmm. And when you see something that people said something for so long and no one wanted to pay attention to it, mm -hmm. they turned a blind eye to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just after downsizing and that job was used to be a two, two person job it was cut down to one and ultimately resulted in a fatality. Now there's multiple causal factors to that, but you know, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. And that's why we all, you know, that's why we all are kind of in the position where we are because we don't want to see it happen. Right. So did you, as you were, as you were going to school and getting, getting your degree um, in safety, did you end up then working in safety at that same facility? No, I did not actually. Mm -hmm. um, so my last year, of course, you needed an internship. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I, I, my union is my family there. And after, you know, being the voice and being there for workers at the facility, I really wanted to do something bigger. You know, my family has always been union members and it, they've really provided benefits that allowed me to go to college, to have health insurance, to have, you know, parents that make a living wage so they can put food on the table. So I wanted to give that back. So I, you know, began inquiring and working through, um, you know, my local, um, some of the local leadership here. Um, then we have a, you know, a different leadership that I talked to and ultimately ended up with an internship at the United Steelworkers headquarters. Huh, wow. Which is, which is, is it in Pennsylvania or where is it? Actually? Yeah, that's in Pittsburgh. Okay. Mm -hmm. hmm. And so is that what launched, uh, what, what launched your career then? Um, I think so. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that's where I think that I. You got your start. Yeah, that's where I got my start. Yeah. Um, and there it's just been, you know, being able to help people mm -hmm. that need your help. Um, this, this United Steelworkers also has, um, I, I would think it's, you know, the largest labor health and safety conference. Um, with around 1,600, 2,000 um, members, um, labor and management, health and safety committee members to come and learn about safety and health. So I really enjoyed, you know, working with that education and empowerment is one of the think pillars that we stand on. Mm -hmm. um, so that really helped. I think it helps members. I enjoyed that. Um, and then just like you, you know, we have the responsibility, um, and the responsibility to, to do these investigations, to make sure that fatality, serious injuries doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, so worked on a lot of that, as I described earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also whenever I started, it was a very, um, very fast moving with OSHA, um, as far as a regulatory standpoint, mm -hmm. um, we were working on silica, um, ended up working on some eye and face, um, reporting and record keeping. Mm -hmm. Um, when you look back actually at, at that year, 2014, I think 2014, 15 year, mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on with OSHA. Um, so I had the opportunity to really get involved with the regulatory process. Um, and be influential in, in, in the passage of some of those laws and amendments to them. Yes, yeah. I, I think so. And, you know, um, this is, uh, I think it's on OSHA's, OSHA's website, but during the silica hearings, you know, we had one of our members who had silicosis from working in a foundry mm -hmm. and how it's impacted his life where he can't, you know, walk from the, 
the door of a grocery store to his car without getting winded mm-hmm. and how if there were protections like that would have changed not only his life but his family's life and we were able to work with that member and you know bring him to the hearings in OSHA and whenever OSHA passed the silica standard he was right there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to welcome it in mm-hmm. so I think those those moments are the moments that you look mm-hmm. back you know mm-hmm. of how gratifying it can be. Yeah, right. And so what Ashley is describing for those of you who are listening, when when um, an agency like like OSHA or it could be a state OSHA program promulgates uh, a new standard or law, as it uh, can also be known, um, there's a public comment period. So some some someone somewhere is writing the regulatory text and and then um, prior to it being de- um, considered to be adopted as a law, there's something called a cu- public comment period where people can come in and tell their stories and, um, you know, like argue one way or another that can that can be part of that process as well. And so, Ashley, you're talking about how um, how members would come in and tell how they were impacted that would then be captured in that history that led up to the passage of particular laws. Hmm. powerful stuff powerful stuff yes and so i have been with the um why was it those are i was a after working with the health and safety department as the health and safety representative Mm -hmm. i now get to work um more on what i on the preventative side where Hmm. we do you know health and safety training so Mm -hmm. we have um, grants with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and IEHS, as mm-hmm. well as with the Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. And we have a large partnership of um, organizations across the United States, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam, where we provide health and safety training um, to many different types of workers, um, some in manufacturing facilities, some temporary workers, some day laborers, just to help provide that education to empower, like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Yes. yeah. 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 So I, you know, I think that I really like doing this part of the safety and health, Mm -hmm. um, to help help prevent and trying to help prevent a different way mm-hmm. and training plays a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So actually when I, I just want to revisit your grandpa just a little bit, um, what did he think? I mean, you guys had, you'd, you'd worked in the same facility and you, you know, kind of grew into this um, worker protection piece of your life. Um, what did your grandpa have to say about that? And what does he think about, about your career? So when I first started at the facility, there were people that worked there that knew my grandfather. So I took on the family name of Hoot. Okay. So anyone there would always call me by the family name. Okay. And and he was very proud of that, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever I started working with the United Steelworkers and whenever I came, you know, working in health and safety, I, I, he's incredibly proud. Mm-hmm. Not only because, you know, I'm his granddaughter, but because he fought for so much mm-hmm. for his coworkers and, you know, can say up until recently continue to fought. So in part of my grandfather's um, collective bargaining agreement when he retired is they were supposed to have, you know, a defined amount of retiree health insurance. And years after, you know, after they retired, that the company took it away, um, terminated their retiree health insurance. So it was a long, it was a long, you know, legal battle um, in trying to come to a resolution of, you know, promising people these benefits that were no longer in going to be provided to them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you imagine, you know, these are these, you know, my grandfather and the people that he worked with, you know, they, at that time they were 80, you know, Hmm. late eight, early eighties. And all of a sudden your benefits are gone. 
and then all of a sudden, hmm. yeah. So, you know, it ended up that they didn't end up getting the benefits that they were promised at their collective bargaining agreement due to several legal issues, um, but they did get some. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, it was more about trying to make sure that, you know, promises or things. It was Prom- promises yeah, it was, made, promises kept. <laughs> not saying that. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You did did indicate that. (laughs) It was more about making sure that when that agreement is made at the table in writing, that there's some honor left in it, right? Mm -hmm. There's some, you know, accountability made to these agreements. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really, you know, attest to the solidarity of my grandfather and all of you know, the people that he worked with on that. And, you know, up until recently, they still met together every month. Hmm. Your grandpa and his, and his, mm-hmm. and his, and his friends from work in the union. Mm-hmm. Yep. They still, mm-hmm. it's kind of the still worker organization of active retirees. So we mm-hmm. call it a SOAR, mm-hmm. SOAR chapters. So they still met um, and they, they fought that fight for years mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's just really important to look back on that, you know, years after, you know, these people left the facility, um, some of them, you know, they may have not have been in contact with, but as soon as that happened, like they all came back together. Mm-hmm. So to have that type of long standing impact and something that binds people together is really moving. And mm-hmm. I was really happy that I could be part of that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And, you, and you know, the, you know, for people who are maybe just starting out in safety and you, you know, you crack open these um, law books of, of safety regulations, um, whether state or federal, and you think, where did this stuff come from? You know, how did this happen? And if you look into the citations in the books, you can see that a lot of things were pulled from other consensus um, building organizations like, you know, the National Fire Protection Agency or the National Electric Code, different places like that. But um, the influencers, when these laws were coming into being in the 70s, were um, where you're working now, Ashley. It was the labor unions who really um, came to the forefront, told the stories, told what was happening um, to try to get these laws, um, in place and pass. So, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, um, gratitude, um, to the work of, uh, your grandparent, your grandfather's generation for, um, for making that happen for the rest of us to be able to have safe and healthy workplaces. Yeah. No. And I think that that's, um, I would encourage people to, um, look at, photography by Earl Daughter. He is a photographer that takes a lot of pictures about, you know, working men and women in working conditions. And it's, it's really, you know, I would encourage, you know, new safety professionals to really look at the workplaces. As I said, you know, I'm happy I worked at the mill, you know, when I did not 60 years before, because it would look completely different. And, you know, look at the rivers, like Cleveland, the rivers near Cleveland looked completely different before Mm -hmm. EPA. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So Ashley, you were, we'll try to include, let's try to include that in the show notes. Um, um, photographs by Earl. What did you say? Daughter, D-O-T-T-E-R. Okay. Okay. We'll try to get that into the show notes, Will, so that people can, uh, I'm talking to our producer who's listening uh, as Ashley oh, and I are sorry. recording. That, that's, that's, no, you're perfectly fine. I'm just putting a reminder out there that we do that. Um, yeah, you were talking about prevention and the work that you're doing in prevention right now. Um, let's, let's talk more about, about what that looks like. Um, I know that you've been doing some work with uh, mental health and with opiates. Um, and, of, and of course gosh, the pandemic we're all living through. So what does that prevention work look like now? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad that you kind of bring up those, those issues. It's really important to note that, you know, we have an epidemic during the pandemic, 
right? This um, opioid use disorders is a continuing and ongoing problem that's, you know, overshadowed um, by the pandemic. And, and, you know, rightfully so, the pandemic, you know, we have a lot of things that need to be addressed, a lot of controls, and, you know, everyone needs to be cognizant and vigilant. Um, but that when you look at these smaller communities that have been severely impacted by the opioid epidemic, there's two things that, you know, we try to point out whenever we're training. Mm -hmm. And one of them is stigma. And the other one is health disparities. Mm -hmm. So talking about the stigma, and we also do this with mental health, um, because there is such a tie in between mental health issues um, that can lead to substance use disorders, um, is people don't want to talk about, right, mental health. People don't want to talk about um, substance use disorders um, in the workplace mm-hmm. for various reasons. One is, you know, um, the society, how they label it. Um, another is, you know, wanting to pe- uh, to be appear strong. Um, and also people don't really correlate it as an occupational safety and health issue. So, they, you know, many people say that we have a drug testing policy at my workplace, so we don't have a drug issue at my workplace. That's, that's not it, like, always stops it. Right. That's not it. <laughs> right. That's not necessarily true. So it's important that, you know, we bridge what's happening in the workplace and how it can connect to what's going on in the community and vice versa, Mm -hmm. because workplaces are just merely an extension of our communities. Mm -hmm. So in looking at our occupations, um, we identify occupational risk factors, things like job burnout, um, stress, harassment, fatigue, presenteeism, whenever people are coming to work when they probably shouldn't be or working overtime, extended hours, when they're not mentally or maybe even physically there. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, you know, can help impact someone's mental health. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, in our trainings, we learn that those issues also contribute to injuries and illnesses in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So to make that connection that you know, these things may cause physical harm, but they can also cause mental harm is really important for that connection. We also talk a lot about ergonomics, sprains and strains. And, you know, that's the standard that we do not have the ability to get back. So Mm -hmm. with ergonomics causing such with ergonomics causing so many injuries in the workplace, um, it's really unfortunate that we can't get those protections. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that one. My, um, my brother uh, suffered a, a, a career ending uh, injury uh, because of repetitive, repetitive stress, repetitive motion. And, um, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. I wish we had, I wish we had that on the, that law on the books too. Some yeah. states, some states do, some yes. states do, uh, which is great for the states that are leading the way. And that doesn't mean that employers, um, in states that don't have that law can't, um, can't take what that, you know, what's being done in other places and apply it to their workplace as well. Mm-hmm. And we also have this conversation around our public sector workers, right? Mm-hmm. Because some of them don't have OSHA protections. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be covered by some other different, you know, state law or maybe a different system within their state government, but there's some workers that don't have them at all. And that's always really important to think about. Um, But as we go through and look at occupational, you know, risk factors and make those connections, it really helps break down that stigma um, that it's not a weak issue, that they're not workplace issues because Mm -hmm. it correlates right back to what some workers or what have been identified as issues that cause injury or illness in their workplace. Mm -hmm. So those are some really important things that we make sure that we get, we are able to provide just to break that bridge there's a, that is really important information we provide so we can bridge, you know, public health and occupational safety and health. 
Yeah, and that, we're, I mean, and we're living so, in such an interesting time, right? I mean, it, that bridge is, if it was ever cloudy or you couldn't make the connection before, 2020 is the year, like, it seems like, yeah, we see this nexus now. We see this nexus between public health and uh, occupational health. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, that ties into, you know, the health disparities we talk about. Mm -hmm. We try to always recognize that there's disparities, whether we're doing environment, like environmental justice training, whether we're talking about Hazwapper, um, we need to recognize, you know, some of the disparities that communities have or communities overcome when it comes to mental health and substance use disorders. I'll speak, you know, to West Virginia, one of the hardest hit states from the opioid epidemic, yeah. um, you know, access to treatment, and being able to to find recovery and get recovery. A lot of employers had maybe a one one test and you're out if you fail that. Um, and those type of punitive policies don't encourage workers or let workers get help. Mm -hmm. They would hide it because they needed their job to support their family. So mm -hmm. it's really important whenever we have these labor management training sessions to talk about that, that if people, you know, really... If we really want to help people, then we need to have policies in place that help people. We were doing a um, listening session um, with NIEHS um, in developing their opioids and work training program. And one member stood up and told us a story about how there was a young, a young man that was hired at their facility. He worked there, you know, six months almost got off probation and failed a drug test and had a mm. bad drug problem. Mm. And he wasn't full-time, so he didn't get EAP benefits. Mm. He couldn't, didn't have insurance that would cover recovery centers. Mm -hmm. And six months later, he was reading that young man's name in the paper from being incarcerated mm. from involving in crime mm -hmm. due to, so, yeah. you know, that was the ability to change mm -hmm. and impact and help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Such important work, Ashley, such important work. Mm. Yeah. How do you see, um, how are you relating safety um, and the pandemic right now? And what's the work look like for you um, with your, with your members now? So during the pandemic, I think that many, many employers, many people in general, you know, try trying to navigate the right thing, mm -hmm. right? Trying to implement controls that are going to help. Um, and there's been little or no or changing guidance that we've gotten in really how to protect people, mm -hmm. protect workers. Mm -hmm. So early on in the pandemic, we wanted to make sure that the message and education and clear information was out there and could get to members. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of our members um, were considered essential. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we represent a lot of paper makers. So um, the more and more toilet paper people bought, the more and more <laughs> workers, right? <laughs> and now we represent a lot of people that make glass and and cans. So as people sit at home and drink their favorite beverage, mm -hmm. we're making those containers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a lot of us, you know, never, Central. never stopped working. And, you know, even more of us, you know, don't have the opportunity to work from home. Yeah. So, so that really put our union and the employers that we work with in a tight space to make sure that we were doing what's right to the best of our ability to protect, you know, our members. With the knowledge it, that you had at the time, which is right. a continually changing body of knowledge as we learn more and more about this novel virus. Mm -hmm. Yes, but... Mm. I think there's a lot of things that prepared, you know, some of our facilities with specific examples is that, you know, many of our workplaces um, were 
not directly impacted, but were cognizant of Ebola. So we had an Ebola infectious disease training program. We worked with employers and locals um, to develop infection control plans. Mm -hmm. Um, So they would have that, you know, for future preparedness planning. Um, Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, some facilities that were very prepared and just pulled out, you know, what they had at, you know, of course, revised it with the new knowledge, but had some infection control measures in place. And of course, we're talking about outside of healthcare in these general examples. Right. Um, so through that and working, you know, from what we know from our previous work with infectious disease response, mm-hmm. um, we were able to really quickly tool up and, you know, help people and get them information and ways to to protect themselves with what we, we knew then and kind of continuing with what we know. Um, and one of the most challenging parts with that was, is the, you know, the lack of supply of PPE. Um, the really good example that I have for this is, um, very early on, we knew that PPE was going to be a problem for nurses or for our healthcare workers, Mm -hmm. not just nurses that, In our industries, we use, you know, elastomeric half face respirators. Mm -hmm. That's what we wear. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) we had a very unique position to help out, you know, healthcare workers or other, you know, frontline workers um, with the resources that we have at throughout our facilities. Now, not to impede or put them in dangerous situations, but whenever we have you know, a large facility that has two half-face respirators and a full full-face respirator, and they have about eight thousand people. Mm-hmm. There's an ability to help there. Yeah. So we really quickly, you know, worked with locals who had any extra personal protective equipment and their employers to donate it to the nearest hospital, just in case, um, yeah. whether it was our member or not. Just mm-hmm. help get some protective equipment to those folks who are going to need it. Mm -hmm. And I don't have exact numbers um, of how much PPE that we were able to work with employers to donate. Um, But I know that there were several, several facilities got those half face elastomeric respirators, which opened up a really unique position to help bridge, I guess, you know, traditional PPE in the healthcare setting into using something that is, you know, just as protective, if not more, right. um, just in a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I mean, people in, in your industry um, know that personal protective equipment in a way that healthcare workers don't, um, because they don't use it day in and day out. Um, you know, like your, like your members do, like uh, people in your industry do. I know of a safety professional friend of mine, um, you know, had as many of us safety professionals saw this pandemic, you know, the, the cloud was coming, right. As it, as it, as it um, entered our country and many of us who know something about in, infectious diseases started buying um, equipment to protect workers. And one of my safety professional friends did that. She's like, I need to, I need, I need more of this stuff because I see this happening. And she said that her management was like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are we, why are we buying this stuff? And she's like, we're going to need it. We're going to yeah. need it for our essential workers. And they're in the, in the food industry. And um, as, as it turned out, they were able to donate a lot of what she had pulled together as well through a, through a combined effort in, uh, in her state um, where the state became a, a collector for anyone who had, um, personal protective equipment that could um, donate and give to the healthcare industry. And so similar situation to you. Yeah. And you look back, you know, what crazy times that was, you know, you don't, right? <laughs> you don't, you can't get, you know, the specific food or you can't get specific items and all in all, while, you know, we, a lot of safety people were just hitting the books, trying to get as much education as possible so we could turn around and help other people. I think that was, you know, one of the most stressful times of my life. I don't know. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, So many of us, I think, I think, I think if, if listeners could be, you know, chiming in as they're listening, (laughs) when they listen to this, probably everyone would say, yes, we do. 
Me too. Yeah. Very intense. I I really think um, another, you know, thing to be cognizant of is we have a whole program that does disaster response training to secondary workers like in the middle of like a hurricane mm-hmm. um, or after a hurricane. So, you know, the people that go and are picking up trash that are helping people, you know, remove um, waterlogged drywall. Um, so we try to, we have a, a program that's also with NIEHS where we go to those areas and help provide training to to workers and community members. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just before this, right, think of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. They had the hurricane, they had an earthquake, and trying to help them in the midst of all of this, or, you know, Cookville, Tennessee, they had a, a horrible tornado that kind of just right went right through the state mm-hmm. right after this. So mm-hmm. there's all these other, you know, disasters that's happening too, which just makes it even more difficult to help people get the equipment that they need and the education that's going to help them protect themselves and their communities mm-hmm. and their workplaces. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So throughout the pandemic, I think that we've all just been trying to, you know, make sure that we can educate people through through our training programs um, and make sure that it's accessible to all workers who need it mm-hmm. and to also make sure they have continued update guidance. Yeah, right, because we're not done yet and things will continue to change and we'll continue to learn We'll continue to learn more and hopefully continue to learn um, more ways to protect, um, protect one another. But at hmm. least, you know, that as you know, you stated that this pandemic has helped bridge that public health and occupational safety and health. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd never think that you'd be able to walk up to anyone in the store and they would know the difference between an N95 and an <laughs> exhalation valve. Right. <laughs> so now's the time, I think, for everyone mm-hmm. who's involved in safety and health to push the message broader and, you know, make it that, you know, Jill, your podcast doesn't have to be the accidental safety pro anymore. It'll be mm-hmm. like gold star safety, um, you know, everyone wanting to be involved and engaged in safety and health because it does have a very big, broad impact. Yeah. 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 It's. It, you know, we, we've in those of us who've been in safety and health for a while, we talk about, you know, safety at home as it relates to safety at work and that there is a nexus there, but it's always sort of like a, it seems like sort of a hard sell sometimes. And it seems like this is like, no, this is everywhere. I mean, depending on the industry you're in, right. I mean, people <laughs> who've had um, employees working uh, with lead um, and bringing lead home on clothes impacts people at home and impacts families you know, there's been a nexus there. I mean, pick a hazard that that's common, but it's not, um, it's not something that's as pervasive as this. And, and so, you know, being safe at work and being safe at home are, are one and the same. And um, yeah, they, they both impact one another and impact families and impact communities. Yeah. So all of us safety and health professionals are suddenly becoming public health um, champions yeah. as well. <laughs> oh, hmm. yeah. Yeah. But this will be another, I think that, you know, looking at how everyone is being so resilient um, among, you know, these times and really working to make sure that workers get the protections that they need. And that's a continual fight. Um, you know, we, we're trying to get an emergency temporary standard um, that would help protect people from infectious disease. Mm-hmm. And now we have, you know, a handful of states maybe that have adopted an, you know, an emergency standard to protect workers mm-hmm. from infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still, you know, it'd be, we're still waiting on some bigger federal push to protect workers who don't have the protections right now. That's right. That's right. Ashley, you mentioned um, resilience, and we were talking about how intense this time has been for all of us in this field, and, well, frankly, for everyone. Um, what are you What are you doing for your own resilience? 
for my resilience <laughs> yeah. or for everyone's resilience? Okay, so good question <laughs> for both then. <laughs> I know, I mean, if you ask me that question, I'm not doing so well myself. So <laughs> it's easier to say what we're doing for others. <laughs> Throughout this year, say that. Throughout this year, our work's changed, how we work's changed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the staff that I work with at the Tony Mazaki Center have geared up 120% um, through the support with an IEHS. Um, so I think that part of, you know, my resiliency is to be able to have that team mm-hmm. that knows where we're at and where we're going and picks up and helps everybody get there. Mm-hmm. Um, loads are h- hard to carry. So I would really think that as far as, you know, resiliency, when it comes to dealing with work, um, having, I have a support system and I think that especially trying to gear up and help all type, all workers this year that they have been monumental in keeping, you know, my mental health and my self-care and stress management on point. Um, and then outside of that realm, I think that it's really important that we reflect back on, on what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So as I said before, that my most gratifying time is helping workers. So mm-hmm instead of looking back and thinking about all of the things that are on our list that we have to get done next week. And to do that, it's really important just to, you know, look at your agenda from last week and see what you accomplished. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause there's some things there and there's everything mm-hmm. time that something like that gets checked off the list. There's people that are impacted by that on the other end, even though you may not see it. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really important. And, you know, I have a, I have a dog that hasn't barked since the beginning of this too. So he helps. <laughs> since the beginning of our recording. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you to your dog. What's your dog's name? Jack. That's the name of my cat. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh. Well, Ashley, um, as we're as we're winding up our time together today, um, if if someone's you know just starting out in safety and health right now, or is uh, maybe even looking for an internship in safety and health, um, w- would unions be one of those places that they could go and inquire um, to get their career started, um, particularly with an intern like you did? I'm gonna plug again, Jill. I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. Yes, there are, you know, many opportunities. There's actually a program. um, It's called the Occupational Health Internship Program, OHIP. Mm. And that program works to connect, you know, undergraduate and graduate students to labor unions or other community organizations um, to give them an internship. It's usually over the summer um, and they do a lot of work around, you know, exposure assessments. Some of them um, look at occupational medicine. It's a really good program Hmm. um, that is ran through, I believe it's a UCLA Loesch. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That's a, that's a great, that's a great tip for our listeners. Thank you for that. Yeah. Ashley, it's been, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today and, you know, just just listening to the breadth and depth of your work. Um, it's pretty fascinating. You know, we started out talking about beryllium and we have talked about mental health and opiates and, you know, a pandemic. (laughs) I mean, anyone who thinks our work is, is boring. Um, yeah, that's not the case. Right. (laughs) And the depth of things that we, we get to learn and get to be involved in as we advocate for workers is, is pretty amazing. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Hmm. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. 
If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro Community Group on Facebook. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past or future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. You can also find all of the episodes complete with transcripts at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety professionals like you and I and Ashley. And special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.